You're listening to Middle East Analysis, a podcast series taking a close look at the Middle East North Africa region. Hello, everybody, and welcome to May's Middle East Analysis. Of course, you will detect that we are not in the studio. We were very delighted to be back in the studio last month, but no, we are remote recording. Travelling commitments, I'm afraid, have, have dictated that. But I am joined by Dr. Harry Hagopian, our usual guest for Middle East analysis. Much that we will talk about today. Obviously, the news broke that the Al Jazeera correspondent, Shireen Abu Akleh, was sadly killed by gunfire while reporting on an Israeli Defence Force raid on a Janine refugee camp in the West Bank. So I know, Harry, you want to obviously not only talk about that, but dedicate this piece of audio to that. Yes, James, and greetings to all our listeners anywhere and everywhere across this global village. Indeed, I'd like to say a few words about Shireen Abu Akleh, and I'd also like, with your kind permission, to dedicate this episode of Middle East Analysis to her. Now, not everybody in the Western world would know Shireen Abu Akleh, although she is a very familiar name and a very familiar face to most Arabs across the whole MENA and Gulf regions. Shireen is a journalist whom, as you said, worked for Al Jazeera Arabic News Service. Before that, she'd also earned her stripes at Radio Monte Carlo and also at South South Palestine, which translates as uh, the voice of Palestine. She lived in Jerusalem. She's a Palestinian with American U.S. citizenship. You can well imagine how I felt when I got the news as I woke up that this familiar face, this familiar voice, this woman who went around covering all events related to Palestine and Israel on Al Jazeera, that she had been murdered, that she had been killed. And of course, the first reaction I got was one of sadness and one of shock, both coming together. And then once the shock dissipated, and once I managed to compartmentalize sadness, I started asking myself, what is happening to our world? What is happening to accountability? What is happening to people who are just dying? And I heard the US and British ambassadors in Israel uh, denouncing this murder and uh, calling for an international investigation. And I thought, is that all we can do? Make another one of those uh, unimpressive statements and then move on? And worse than that, I then heard uh, one member of the Israeli parliament or Knesset justifying what had happened to Shirin Abu Akleh by saying that, oh, well, in a war zone, uh, journalists could also be victims when the Israeli army is defending itself against terrorists. And then I thought, well, everybody who was there said that there was no fighting happening at that moment there. So what is he talking about? But I reminded myself, of course, that this man is notorious for being an extremist and for saying anything and everything that denounces uh, Palestinian Arabs. And then I thought, okay, so what now? What about the International Criminal Court? What would its chief Karim Khan say? 
What about the high decibels that we hear and the uh, the statements that are made uh, from Gaza to the Arab world and beyond? This is these are some of my thoughts, some of my initial reactions when I saw this woman, this this wonderful, soft-spoken woman who was very sharp, who was very conscientious of her role as a journalist. She was basically killed for being a journalist and for reporting on what is happening in Palestine. And sadly enough, sadly enough, high decibels aside, denunciations aside, International Criminal Court and other legal and judicial avenues aside, I want to say to our listeners today that Shirin Abu Akhle, much as she is a loved woman across the whole Arab world, and trust you me, she is known pretty much by anybody and everybody who knows anything about Arab media, she's not alone. She only represents one person, one victim across a whole swathe of Palestinians who have died in their quest for liberation and in their quest for self-determination. So all I said at the end, and I want to share this with you and with the listeners, I concluded that five, ten-minute jumble of ideas as I was waking up to this news. I said, we keep talking about Slava Ukraini, glory to Ukraine, which our prime minister and everybody else nowadays seems to mutter. Well, I want to say today, Slava Palestini, glory to Palestine too. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because you quite rightly yourself say there that Shireen was one person, but it is, it, I mean, it's a tragedy, yes. And it felt somewhat emblematic, didn't it? I mean, there's there's been an increase, a sort of steady increase over the last 16 months or so of, of, of this crackdown. We always talk about human rights violations, rights of passage, evictions, settlements, failed Palestinian elections. How many times have we talked about that as well? There is this escalating violence, isn't there, Harry? And to sort of wake up and, and have this news really just reinforced the fact that nothing is getting better, is it? It very much reinforces that, uh, James, that reinforces the fact that no matter what is done, whether by Israel with its oppressive measures, whether it's by those countries that are normalizing relations with Israel and hoping that the Palestinian issue would disappear from uh, the consciousness of the Arab and global world, uh, no matter what happens, Palestine is there, and Palestine is a reminder to us that without justice, there is no peace. And therefore, the, the reaction of the Palestinian people in East Jerusalem, across the West Bank, and in Gaza, let alone the Palestinian Arab Israelis living within the Green Line in places like the Galilee and other, that these people have this yearning for freedom, and that this yearning cannot be denied no matter what happens. And we have waves. We have waves of protest, and then that wave is quelled. People are tired. Then they recharge their batteries. They regroup, and then there is another wave of protest. And as we have seen, as you just mentioned, in the last uh, few months, the uh, violence that was meeting the protests by Palestinians in Sheikh Jarrah, a very affluent upmarket neighborhood of Jerusalem, when that 
then metamorphosed into more protests by Palestinians in Jenin and in other parts of uh, Palestine in the West Bank. All this is a reminder that there is something that needs to be done and that the world is not giving enough attention to this conflict or trying to ignore that conflict, perhaps because of disinterest, perhaps because of the longevity of the conflict, or because of double standards. Whatever it is, these protests are continuing, and no matter what happens, Palestinians at the very end should be masters of their own fate. It is not America that is going to provide the answer. It is not the European Union that is going to provide the answer. It is not even Jordan with the enormous efforts exercised by this small kingdom to try and keep the Palestinian issue uh, at the forefront of political negotiation. All this is fine, but at the end of the day, it is the Palestinians who are bearing the brunt of a very vicious, oppressive war of attrition, an occupation that is trying to grind them down. And this is where it's going to keep happening, this wave, this cycle of ups and downs, until such time as there is a solution. You and I have spoken about this, as you just said, about this conflict many a time. And at the beginning, I was saying during the time I was involved with the Oslo process and the the second track negotiations that I would be delighted to see a resolution to this conflict with equal status for Israeli Jews and Palestinian Arabs, be they Muslim or Christian. Eventually, I changed my mind and I thought I'm going to die before I see a resolution to this conflict. I hope the younger uh, generations do that. And I know that you're going to visit Israel and Palestine shortly, uh, James, and again, and you will see with your own eyes how tired, but also how defiant the Palestinians are in the face of constant aggression. Yeah, and I think you said it very well yourself, actually, that that disinterest from the rest of the world, it does ebb and flow. I think you, you've surmised that very nicely indeed. And it reminds me, you being a, a French speaker amongst other languages, of that phrase you use, plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. I mean, if ever there's a phrase that's appropriate for an ongoing conflict, it's this one. Absolutely. And just to, to finish off this part of our conversation, James, it is galling for me in one sense to see the the froth, the, the excitement of the West with what is happening in the war between Russia and Ukraine and all the effort, energy, money and time and uh, decibels that are expended on that war. And I have spoken about that unjust war as well, that all that is happening there, whereas When it comes to Palestine, by now pretty much the granddaddy of all political conflicts, nobody really seems to care, or those who care, it is so ephemeral that from day to day it changes. So uh, today's example, concluding with Shireen Abu Akhle again, this is an example of a journalist wearing her protective gear putting a helmet, press helmet on her head with the word press in capital letters emblazoned on her flak jacket. Despite all that, a bullet came just 
underneath her uh, ear and killed her pretty much almost instantly. Why? Because she was talking about a conflict that remains unresolved and therefore that remains as painful today as it was many decades ago. Yeah, absolutely. And, and as you say, I'll, I'll possibly see some of this with my own eyes in the coming weeks. Still heartbreaking, eternally so. Uh, there has to be a, a, a form of justice, surely, for the Palestinian people in order for there to be peace for both sets of people in the region. But thank you for that, Harry. Um, now, we were going to talk slightly ahead of time of the Lebanon parliamentary elections, weren't we? Obviously, Sunday the 15th of May, um, not too far away. One thing I found quite interesting about that, Harry, is that I think more than 100,000 Lebanese overseas have, have already cast their ballots of, of around about a quarter of a million eligible, which I think is three times up on 2018. I don't know what to say about this, because obviously there have been the the socioeconomic problems, the port blast in Beirut. It, it just seems to lurch from one disaster to another. So I guess that the two quick questions I would ask you, will it be democratic and will it lead to any sort of change? Your two quick questions, James, <laughs> Big will, questions. will be met by two quick answers. Will it be democratic? Yes, I think it will be as democratic as you can get in the Levant or in the Arab world. The two countries where there is a sense of democracy uh, in the Arab world, there are others, but in varying degrees and measures. But the two countries that still apply some democracy uh, to their elections, uh, the freedom of choice, are Lebanon and Tunisia. And in Lebanon, there will be a sense of democracy, uh, maybe democracy à l'oriental, uh, Eastern democracy rather than Western democracy. But let us not go into cultural relativism here. The uh, fact that the expatriate Lebanese communities across the whole world have already voted, that is quite true. And if my guess is right, the majority of those people will have voted for the opposition and not for established powers as we know them today. However, of course, the main crux of the matter, the main election is on Sunday the 15th. And in that election, democracy in one sense will prevail. But will the outcome uh, lead to reform or change? The second question is exact, has an exactly opposite answer because the answer in all likelihood will be no. And the reason, reason it will be no is because the corruption and the interests of the powers that are in control of Lebanon, the political factions, whether Shia, whether Sunni, whether Christian, whether Druze, are so much rooted into the culture of the country and they have their own followers, uh, their own mercenaries, political mercenaries, that I do not think that it would be possible for the street between inverted commas, for the activists between inverted commas, for civil society and civil hub advocates between inverted commas. I doubt very much that they would be able to do much. They might dent a little bit the structure. There might be less of this really 
distasteful corruption that has taken hold of the country and brought it down to bankruptcy, to poverty, to a loss of hope and a loss of vision, let alone a loss of relevance in the region from Lebanon, the Paris of the Middle East, to Lebanon now in the gutter. All this is not going to change much with a few dents. And what I would suggest to you, James, is that we park this uh, topic and revisit it in June, if you allow it, so that we have the results and then we can talk a little bit more without me having to eat any humble pie. And I'm quite happy to eat humble pie and to be told that I got it wrong and that the uh, people who want to reform the system will have the upper hand, but I am maybe too jaundiced to believe that this will happen and uh, await the results uh, post Sunday, the 15th of May. Well, humble pie or, or no humble pie, one thing that seems to be apparent to me is we, we were talking about Palestinian weariness, but there must be weariness on the part of the people of Lebanon. They seem exasperated, don't they? And, and if you're saying that there's only going to be the most minor of dents and the chances of change are, are minimal, it's going to be more fatigue, I think, for, for the Lebanese people. You know, the Lebanese and the Palestinians are intertwined in many ways. Some of those ways are very negative. Some of them are very positive. They have a history that goes back decades and decades However, the one distinction I would make for our listeners between Lebanon and Palestine is that Lebanese are weary, whether they're war-weary, whether they're corruption-weary, whether they're politics-weary. They're weary in their own country, facing the challenges of refugees, of economic meltdown, of sinister corruption, of violence and military or militia-led uh, blackmail of the whole country. All this is happening, but at least they have a geographical space called Lebanon. The Palestinians who are also weary and who've been fighting and full of hope hope that is almost always quashed, they do not have the privilege of saying we have a space called Palestine geographically, except if we consider Palestine a virtual entity these days. And that is not something that I'm willing to consider as a huge achievement if we stop there and then say, that's it. Yeah, and you're absolutely correct to point out that that distinction in terms of land. Now, Harry, a little bit earlier, you, you mentioned Ukraine, and it remains right, right at the top of the news agenda for most outlets, to be quite honest. Let's touch on that briefly now, um, particularly with regard to Syria, Russia and Ukraine, because Syrian President Bashar al-Assad, a man we've spoken about again many times over the last decade or so, has been in, in Iran. Bring us up to date with the situation there, if you would. Uh, yep, James, uh, thank you. You might have seen this. Uh, I hope some of our listeners have seen it also on my Twitter when I posted a picture of the president of Syria, Bashar al-Assad, and the president of Iran, Raisi, sitting together like two students facing the Ayatollah of Iran, who is the teacher. And I thought to myself, this pretty much encapsulates one part of the reality of Iranian domination 
of Syria in some aspects and some ways. But side by side with the Iranian domination, there are also other kinds of dominations. If you go to the uh, northeast of uh, Syria or the northwest of Syria, what do you see? On the one hand, you see some U.S. an army presence by the United States there defending its own interests and its own own oil interests. And then on the other side of the country, you see the Turks who are basically keeping this separatist enclave, Idlib, alive. It's almost like an enclave. I call it an enclave because it's one of the very few places where the Syrian army, aided and abetted by Russia and Iran, have managed to reconquer after the famous popular revolutionary uprisings that you and I spoke about many a time in the past. In a sense, this is uh, what is happening with Iran on the one hand, uh, telling Syria what to do and not to do, Turkey doing its own bit dismissive of what Syria thinks, the Americans uh, on another little patch of uh, the north in Syria, and of course then there is Russia, Russia which completely changed the course of events in Syria. It is not a trope, it is a reality that had Russia not intervened in Syria, Bashar Assad will not be president today and the country will probably have had a different fate. Yet, Russia intervened, Russia changed the course of events, Russia helped decimate large parts of one sector of Aleppo and other parts of the country, alongside all the barrel bombs and everything else, we are where we are today. And in my opinion, what has happened in Syria with the Russians was a dress rehearsal to what is happening in Ukraine today. The Russian attacks against civilian and other uh, uh, targets in uh, parts of uh, southeastern Ukraine at the moment, places like Mariupol, for instance, where anything is game for destruction if you don't do what I want you to do, which is raise the white flag, is reminiscent of what Russia encouraged Syria to do in Syria itself. So all this basically reminds me of how nasty world politics uh, could be. And of course, in this whole fold, we can also add so much else. We can talk not only about the powers that are basically dictating to Bashar al-Assad and uh, his uh, government or his followers what to do and what not to do in the country, but we can also talk about the anticipation of reconstruction in the country, and I don't see that coming for some foreseeable future because it is not Russia that is going to pay for the reconstruction of Syria. Those who would pay are not willing to pay now, given the reality in uh, Syria, which, by the way, has 90% of its population living under the poverty line. There is always the idea of readmission into the Arab League, into the Arab fold. And in that respect, the United Arab uh, Emirates, always a country to, to go a different way, is trying to facilitate that process, but has not been uh, successful yet. Then we have the United Nations that has tried to 
help the refugees, particularly those in these separatist enclaves, to give them sustenance, food, etc., etc. And last July 2021, the, after a lot of deliberation, the five permanent members of the United Nations Security Council managed to agree, because there was fear of Russian and Chinese veto on this decision, they finally agreed to keep Bab el-Hawa entrance, entry point from Turkey into Syria open so the UN convoys could go and help provide humanitarian relief to those Syrians caught up in the war. Now, with American-Russian relations at such a low ebb, there is fear that when this motion comes for renewal in a couple of months' time, the Russians and the Chinese this time will not agree and will just veto it. So there goes another chunk of humanitarian uh, aid. And uh, the fact that uh, President Joe Biden has recently given 800 million US dollars in aid to Syria is a drop in the ocean when it comes to the needs of Syria, but it's even a smaller drop in the bucket when it comes to the amount of aid that the United States, with full congressional approval, is giving Uh, to Ukraine. So basically what I'm trying to say in my own way in a few words is Syria is still in a mess for those people who are wondering, we haven't heard of Syria, maybe things are okay now. No, we haven't heard much of Syria because we're busy with other issues, but Syria is certainly not in a good place. And the second thing I would say is that what, Syria, what Russia succeeded to do in Syria, it is not necessarily succeeding to do in Russia because of various geopolitical realities, but not least because Ukraine happens to be in a different part of the map of the world than Syria, and the people of Ukraine are viewed differently from the people of Syria. And there I stop before I dig myself a, a deeper hole. Look, you talked about the relationship between the US and Russia being at an all-time low, something I think we can't deny, obviously. But then there's that relationship between the Gulf Cooperation Council and the USA. Now, that's not particularly rosy, is it? And and also, Ukraine comes into that as a bit of a stress test of that relationship, wouldn't you say? I would agree with you entirely. I concur that the relations between the United States and some GCC countries, not all, is not good. As you and I know, the GCC, the Gulf Cooperation Council, consists of six uh, countries. Of those countries, the two countries that have problematic relations today with the USA or vice versa are Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. It could well be because, I mean, we have to go back a little bit into history and to factor in a few issues. The first one that put a huge dent in that relation between the USA and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia was the premeditated murder of Jamal Khashoggi in the Saudi embassy in Turkey. That basically had a huge amount of resonance across the world, and it impacted a lot the way Americans viewed Saudi Arabia and the American political establishment viewed Saudi Arabia. Why? Because they also equated this premeditated murder with what had happened with the 9-11 incident and the Twin Towers, where many of the perpetrators were also 
uh, originally uh, from Saudi Arabia. So this already ruffled the relationship. When Trump came to power, people thought, oh, good, uh, Trump is a different kind of populist person. He doesn't believe in ethics. He doesn't believe in morality or probity. He only believes in the U.S. dollar and his interests. So things will get better. And of course, Trump's first visit as president was to Riyadh in Saudi Arabia. However, even Trump disappointed uh, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates when he did not respond, amongst other things, to a Houthi attack on the kingdom during his administration time. So you have that memory, you have Jamal Khashoggi, you have the fact that the uh, Joe Biden, when he was running in the primaries, he basically kept uh, coming out with very disparaging, negative uh, comments against the Saudis, all this, I mean, all this is in the, in the, in the pot and uh, the people of the region don't forget that. And of course, when it came to the Ukraine war and the West started thinking of stopping imports of Russian oil and gas, the US administration and the West turned to Saudi Arabia and said, will you open up the tap a little bit more so we can compensate for what we're not getting from Russia because we want to sanction Russia and punish uh, President Vladimir Putin? And Saudi Arabia said no. And then didn't even respond to attempts by the US administration to speak uh, with the Saudi leadership, particularly with the uh, crown prince known better as MBS. So all this, put all this uh, together, and then you can also add to it the fact that the Hill, the Congress, is very much anti-Saudi. You can see why there are such problems between Saudi Arabia, um, largely Saudi Arabia, but also United Arab Emirates and the United States, and why the other four GCC countries have varying degrees of good to very good relations uh, with the USA. So I think personally that the Saudis and perhaps even the Emiratis have decided that the Americans cannot be counted upon, that the present president of the USA, Joe Biden, cannot be counted upon, and that America is no longer interested in them as close allies and is turning his, its attention to China, which incidentally explains to some extent the war against Russia. But that's another strategy that uh, we might or might not uh, talk about one day because it's outside the remit of MEA. So all this is leading those two countries to pause and be a bit more careful about its relations with the USA and looking elsewhere, hence the agreements, the meetings in, with Chinese officials, with Russian officials, and with others trying to diversify, as it were, the interests of those two GCC countries when it comes uh, to its own economic and military uh, interests. Part of it might be because they're afraid, they see themselves facing the Houthis, they see themselves facing their big uh, fear, Iran, they see themselves facing an American ally that is turning its back to some extent uh, to their needs. Perhaps it's also their own fears and their own incompetence which is coming to the fore. All this is pretty much 
what is happening, and all this is contributing to a more lukewarm relations between the United States and parts uh, of the GCC. And I think that that story has not been concluded yet. We don't know what the concluding chapter will be. It could be one way or the other. And again, uh, time will tell. Let me make you smile, although I can't see you. I'm not a prophet. It's been a few podcasts since you've said that. You know that. (laughs) Indeed. So I thought I'd remind you and our dear listeners of the fact that I do not claim uh, to be a prophet, unlike many others who give themselves that sobriquet. Well, hence why you're not trying to forecast the Lebanese parliamentary elections. Absolutely. And that's why I'm very conscious also all the time of my own fallibilities. Well, Dr. Harry Hagopian's prophet suit is obviously safely put back in in the cupboard there. So um, (laughs) time will tell, as they say. Harry, thank you for that. Very interesting, actually. Now, this is my favourite part of the podcast. And I do also thank you for being relatively succinct. I didn't know that was a Hagopian trait, but you're being rather disciplined today, which I think is good. Uh, James, Um, despite your defamatory remark there, I would say, (laughs) yes, I'm trying desperately to be succinct so that I do not tire. A lot of feedback you and I have got about our monthly MEA is that, oh, we love it, but it's a tad too long. Please make it shorter. So I'm trying to comply. Well, I think that's because we enjoy it too much. That's part of the problem, frankly, Um, as well as top class analysis, Harry. Now, listen, it's afterthoughts time. I really like this, but you you very, very rarely tip me off as to what afterthoughts you're going to be bringing to the table. So, dear listeners, I am in the dark as well. Where are you starting with your afterthoughts, Harry? I love my afterthoughts. And uh, some of my associates and friends were very keen on listening to my MEA to get the opinions of somebody who's not bound institutionally to anybody, so who can basically say whatever he thinks is right. Uh, They like that because it doesn't always mean that they follow what I'm saying, but at least they know what the other uh, man in the world thinks. So today I'm going to surprise you with the afterthought, James, in that I'm going to try and blend in, meld in four uh, afterthoughts. Afterthought number one, I just want to give a shout to all Tunisians in Tunisia. Why? Because whether they approve of all the restrictive measures as I see them, perhaps even in some instances the anti-constitutional measures as I see them as an international lawyer uh, of what President Qais Saied has done in Tunisia, or whether they approve of what he's doing, I can see at the moment uh, Tunisia going farther and farther away from what it achieved during the initial phase of the Arab revolutionary uprisings. And I can see now the president who's trying to get rid of uh, the parliament, who's trying to get rid of his foes, uh, etc., etc., and who's trying to run the country as if it is a monocracy, in other words, as if it's a country with only one ruler at the top, and he says what happens to everybody else in the country. This is one of the biggest ailments of the MENA region, and I hope that it will not happen, and I hope that there will be ways to repair 
the damage or to surprise us with the better news in the future. However, my first shout is for all the Tunisian men and women today in a state of uncertainty, not only politically, but also economically in very dire straits as they try to understand what is happening in this lovely Arabic and French-speaking country. The second afterthought is, I, is, is a shout. A shout for Ala Abdel Fattah. Who is Ala Abdel Fattah? He is an Egyptian blogger, very famous. All people who are on social media platforms know about Ala Abdel Fattah, who not only is an Egyptian blogger who recently acquired British citizenship, by the way, but he's also somebody who is a victim of the Egyptian presidency's violation of human rights. He has been imprisoned, he's in jail, because he's spoken out too publicly and too candidly about realities in Egypt. Therefore, like so many other human rights activists, he's uh, thrown into jail. And the poor man, he's really somebody who, who has instant recognition, James. And unfortunately, I heard recently, and I don't know what's happened in the last two, three days, but I heard recently that he's so desperate that he's already gone on a, he's fasting, he's not accepting food, and he's already said his goodbyes to his family, which means, he's a young man, by the way, which means that he is preparing himself to die in jail. Why that? Because Egypt, which is a fantastic country with a huge civilization that goes back millennia, is a country that is run by an administration that doesn't believe in human rights. And the only way you can survive in Egypt is if you keep mum, you keep your mouth shut, and you do things the way the authorities want you to do them. Otherwise, you are in trouble. So first shout to Tunisians, second shout to Allah and Egyptians. And finally, the third uh, afterthought is a two-part uh, thought, and I'm going to bring it to base where you and I normally live in London, in the United Kingdom, in England. So sorry to some listeners for suddenly turning parochial, but the first one, shout is for Sir Keir Starmer. Now, I'm not going to be political. I'm not going to say what political party I like or don't like, but what I'm going to say is give a shout to him not also because he used to be former DPP prosecutor and he's a lawyer like me, although far, far more successful than I as a lawyer, but because he, as the leader of the opposition, reminded us recently that high public office comes with moral probity too. And it is so refreshing to see a politician say, if it is proven that I broke the law and committed a crime, and the police in Durham fine me for that crime, which is basically to break the lockdown rules in COVID if it were to happen, I shall step down. In other words, I shall resign as leader of the opposition. And I thought to myself, a huge waft of fresh air coming into our uh, political realities. And Side by side with Sir Keir Starmer, I also want to give a shout to Deborah James, who suffers from cancer and who has highlighted to us not only 
her experience and her struggle with cancer, but also the struggle of the system with cancer and how the NHS, despite all its short supplies, desperately tries uh, to fight a disease that, despite the fact that we spend billions and zillions of pounds and dollars and euros and yuans and yens across the world for military and other purposes, we still haven't managed to stop this dreadful disease called uh, cancer. So in a sense, this is a shout for Deborah James as well. And these four basically encapsulate my afterthoughts for today. And I offer them to our listeners truly with humility and modesty. I hope they will understand where I'm coming from. Very well said, Harry. And on top of that, a lot of doffing of your cap there. Um, I will somewhat apologise to our listeners because if you can detect the snoring of a bulldog in the background, that is on me, not Harry. So apologies for that. Harry, thank you so much. Three quarters of an hour, the top end of what you were aiming for. But nonetheless, you've brought it in, let's say on time. I think you've done very well. Although you have accused me of defamation, which I find a little bit scary seeing as you're a lawyer. No legal aid in such matters either. So um, I better get my um, bank manager on the phone, hadn't I? Don't worry about that. We're friends, James. <laughs> Thank you very much as well for taking the trouble of accompanying me on this monthly journey for Middle East uh, analysis. And uh, greetings not only to you, but also to your bulldog, which I hasten to add is a French bulldog. That's true. That is true. And a very loud one at that. All the best to you and warm greetings for another month as we welcome spring to all our listeners in the UK and across the world. Harry, thank you so much.